again on your behalf, I want to give the Reverend Greer a very warm welcome to our pulpit this evening. We have certainly been blessed through his ministry already. And as the Lord's servant comes now to bring the message, we trust that he will know the help of the Lord this evening. Thank you. Well, we'll turn our Bibles to uh, the book of Ezra, of course, and to the third chapter. As you turn to it, let me thank uh, our brother for his words of welcome. So uh, good to be here again on this Tuesday evening, and we pray that the Lord will be with us and touch our hearts, draw near to us, and bless us as we meet around his word. And I welcome you also in the Lord's name. Thank you for coming again to hear the Lord's word. So Ezra chapter 3, we want to read this chapter together just now, and may the reading of the Word be a blessing to our souls. Let's hear God's Word. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were gathered in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and built up the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings unto the Lord, thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom as the duty of every day required, and afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and of every one that willingly offered a freewill offering Unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. They gave money also unto the masons and unto the carpenters, and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon and to them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming in unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Jeshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Henadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord, 
after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers, who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. And God will bless the reading of this as word to all of our hearts. Now again, we'll just have a word of prayer before we come to consider what the Lord would have us to notice tonight in this chapter. So let's bow together, please. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we wait at thy feet. We thank thee for the, the, the opportunity, for the privilege that we have of again gathering here in this manner. We come together, Lord, as a band of thy children. We need thee. We feel our own bankruptcy. Every time we come to this very moment when the word is open and we come to the preaching of the truth and the message of God, it is with that consciousness of our own utter helplessness, powerlessness, that we do so. But Lord, we look away to thee. Thou hast already been with us in these meetings. We, we have sensed that. We believe that. And Lord, we cry to thee to come now. This is a new moment. We have not been here before. We have not crossed this way heretofore. And Lord, we will never be at this moment again. Soon this meeting will be over. And in eternity, as we see things from our human perspective. And therefore, Lord, we pray that thou wilt come and fill this place with thy glory and thy presence. And speak unto our hearts, we do pray. Grant to us the power of God. Grant us the anointing of the Spirit. Cleanse my heart from every sin. And breathe on me from the courts above. And give that grace that is needed. Even as we wait at thy feet. Touch every individual in this company now. And draw alongside. Bless those online. Be with each one. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And for his sake. And for his everlasting glory. Amen. And amen. Now this series of, of messages on Ezra, as you are aware, is entitled Revival Highlights in Ezra. Ezra is the account of the Lord reviving his work after years of spiritual desolation among the nation of Israel. The Lord delivered his people from the captivity into which their sin had brought them. He restored them to their own land. He enabled them to rebuild the temple and also uh, rebuild the city of Jerusalem itself. Above all, by the work of His Spirit, there was a reinstatement of the biblical worship of God. And that's the focus really in Ezra chapter 3. Ezra himself recognized that what the Lord was doing 
in these days was a work of revival. I explained to you on Sunday night, and I just say it again in case there are some here who weren't there on that occasion, that the book of Ezra falls into two parts, chapters 1 to 6, and then chapter 7 on through to 10. And there's a space of time in between those two sections. It's when you come to chapter 7 that you find Ezra appearing on the scene. Ezra's not here at this stage in the opening six chapters. It's only later on that he leaves Babylon and he comes in another return of a company of the Lord's people as those chapters indicate. And so when we read the book carefully, we find this. But in that second section of the book, we discover in chapter 9 that Ezra twice uh, uses the word reviving. In Ezra 9, verse 8 and verse 9, he speaks there of the Lord having left a remnant to escape from Babylon and of the Lord's giving them a little reviving in their bondage. Now, the Hebrew word for reviving in Ezra 9, verse 8 and 9, means to preserve life. The Hebrew word for revive, it's a standard Hebrew word. It's used a lot in the Old Testament. Many, many times it's translated to quicken. And, of course, quickening is something that we know about, don't we, as we study the Bible. It's the Lord alone who can quicken the soul in the new birth, and it's the Lord alone who can quicken the church, quicken his people to revive their hearts, their souls. And so sometimes the Hebrew word for Revive is translated to quicken, but it's also translated, as I've just said, to preserve life. And one of the outstanding places is in Genesis 45, verse 5, where Joseph testifies, God did send me before you to preserve life. And those words, that little phrase, to preserve life, is the translation of the same Hebrew word that means to revive. You see, Israel, in the days of Joseph, well, the twelve sons of Jacob, as they were at that time, faced the famine, they faced desolation, like all the nations of the earth in those days. And But for God working through Joseph, sending him ahead, and that was the whole plan and purpose. Though he didn't know it at the time when he was sold into slavery and treated so despicably, at that time, he didn't realize what God was doing. But as he looked back, when he saw his 12 brothers arrive in uh, Egypt to buy corn, and he saw the destitution of the whole situation, he saw then what God had been doing with him or in his life. And this is how he puts it. God did send me before you to preserve life. God was sent, or sorry, Joseph was sent by God to Egypt for that express purpose of preserving the life of his people in the face of that awful famine. And what a vivid portrayal of revival we have in that set of events and in that very language that Joseph uses where he speaks of God sending him ahead of all the others in order to preserve life. The Lord moves by his Spirit in revival and the spiritual life of his church or his people is preserved and it flourishes again. And so that's the word that 
Ezra uses in Ezra chapter 9, as I say, in two places. In, in verse 8 and then verse 9, his second usage of the word is in uh, chapter 9, 9. And he specifically uses it in relation to the temple. He states in Ezra 9, 9 that the Lord had given them a reviving to set up or to raise up as it could be read the house of our God are reviving to set up the house of our God. Clearly then, what happened in Ezra 3, because that's where we see the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple. What happens here in Ezra 3 was a reviving. We learn this from Ezra. We compare these verses, and it's very obvious that he saw the very work of laying the foundation and then the building of the temple as a reviving of the work of God, because remember that the temple was the very center of the spiritual life of God's people. Prior to that day, it was Solomon's temple. It was destroyed, and now the second temple is going up. And remember something else, brethren and sisters. It was in that second temple that our Lord stood and often ministered in the days of His flesh. As I said I believe again last night, all that you have in Ezra and Nehemiah is for the purpose of preparing the way for the coming of the Redeemer. And in that very temple whose foundation we read about in this chapter, Jesus Christ stood and preached and ministered and delivered to the people of His day the wonderful things of God. And so God was reviving and moving and working in preparation for the preservation of the spiritual life of His own cause and even for the coming of the Messiah in His day some hundreds of years later. And so in the light of Ezra 9, 8 and 9, the meaning and the message of this third chapter is established. The events that are recorded in this passage are to be understood as true revival that led to the preservation of the spiritual life of God's people in strategic times. Do you wonder why we call upon our people to continue praying for revival? Because revival is sorely needed. I've been stressing this. It is something for which we should pray always. We should never stop praying for it. Because we live in desperate times. The work of God has sunk into decline uh, to a great degree. We need the Lord to visit. We need the Lord to move. We need the Lord to come and work and revive. For what reason? To preserve the life of His church. And that's how God does it. You know, there are people who don't believe in revival and who don't even pray for revival who claim to be Christians. Now, I'm not saying they aren't, but I am saying there's something wrong with them. Because if you understand church history and you read church history in the Bible and down through the annals of the church itself, you will find that God at various times suddenly moved. When things were at such a low ebb, when the day was dark, and He brought a preservation of spiritual life at that time, and He expanded that spiritual life, and He did the wondrous things of which we read. 
And you know, there are far more revivals that were sent by God than we're even aware of in our day and time. They're outstanding ones, of course. And the Reformation indeed was the greatest revival that the church has ever seen from the days of Pentecost right on through to that day. And other great movements of God by which he renewed his work, stirred up his people, saved multitudes. As I was saying last night, furnished his church with great preachers. Every reformer was a converted Roman Catholic priest, brought out of Rome, out of darkness, and made a child of God and a preacher of the Word. What was God doing? God out of the ashes and out of the rubbish that Rome was responsible for, raised up a whole New Testament that had a worldwide impact and thank God as an impact to this very day. And so this is what revival is all about. And we're going to look here at this third chapter this evening because in this chapter, and this is how we sum up this chapter, there's a certain word that's used three times. It is the word together. You'll notice in verse 1, it says they gather themselves together. You'll notice it in verse 9, it says, Then stood Joshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together. And you'll find it in verse 11, And they sang together. So three times you got this word. I want to look at it and build the message around it that I want to, by the Lord's help, bring to you this evening. And we're going to look at three views in this chapter, focused on this word together, that tell us certain things, certain truths about God's people who in their togetherness were experiencing revival. Number one, God's people seeking together. That's verse 1. Turn to that verse again. When the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in their cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Notice the language. They gathered themselves together. Take the two words there, gathered and together, because in the original Hebrew, there is just one word that's translated gathered together. I know that in between you've got the pronoun themselves, but gathered and together are one word in the Hebrew, and therefore this one Hebrew word means to gather together. The term signifies the concept of the Lord's people unitedly seeking the Lord. That's why they have gathered together. They are there to seek the Lord and so we have God's people seeking together. Now, the issue of seeking together is strengthened by the additional phrase there in verse 1 where it says, as one man. And we should not fail to see that. The Hebrew word for man in that little phrase signifies an individual man. Uh, there, there, while, there were uh, uh, while there were thousands present, on this occasion, obviously, they were seeking God together as one man. The phrase signifies one will, one mind, one desire. 
They came together to seek God as one man. Everybody was of the same mind. Everybody's will was inclined in that direction of seeking God. Everyone's heart was filled with this desire to seek the living God. It's just like the New Testament term, one accord. It's similar. It's really the Old Testament counterpart of the New Testament phrase, one accord, that you find quite often in the book of Acts, like Acts 1 verse 4 and Acts 2 verse 1. And so since revival is the product of the Holy Spirit, and of course that goes without saying, but since revival is the product of the Holy Spirit, then in revival the Holy Spirit will promote this togetherness. He will have God's people seeking together, seeking after God in a new way, seeking after God with hearts that are bubbling over, filled with desire for God. Everybody's will, as I say, inclined in that one direction of doing business with God, calling upon the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings people together, brings God's people together. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of unity. Ephesians 4.3 talks about the unity of the Spirit. And the unity of the Holy Spirit is identified by believers unitedly seeking the Lord with that one mind to further God's work, to see it flourish, to see it grow, to see it develop. And notice here that this matter of seeking God here, seeking God together, it was based on the Scripture. Look at verse 2. It says, Then stood up Jeshua the son of Josadak and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and his brethren, and built up the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses. You'll find the same phrase again in verse 4. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written. Now those are vital words. They're just not referring to something that was found in an earlier part of the Bible only. Rather, they are emphasizing that seeking God in revival times will be on the basis, on the, on the foundation of God's precious Word. You see, brethren and sisters, the Holy Spirit will never lead His church, God's church, away from the Bible. He will always lead the church of Jesus Christ back to the Bible. If we have strayed somewhat, if we have gone into some way of thinking that's not biblical, when revival comes, the Lord will bring our minds back to the Word. He will do it by the Holy Ghost. They were seeking together and they were seeking on the basis of the Scriptures. And so the Holy Spirit is the author of the Word, you see. Second Timothy 4 or 3, 16, you know the verse well. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or all Scripture is God-breathed. And this phrase here, as it is written here in Ezra 3, is indicative of this fact that their minds were brought to focus upon the Word of God that was given by the Spirit of God and what they're setting out to do. They want to do it according to the Scripture. And those very words, as it is written, they're found so often throughout the Bible, or synonymous terms, and, and you know that. You've, you've read about it. Thus saith the Lord, or according to the word of the Lord, or whatever. They're all synonyms for the one concept 
of doing things according to the book. You see, brethren and sisters, revival, and I take you back again even to the Reformation just to, to illustrate this point I want to make. In revival, as it is written, comes to the forefront of all that takes place. It's not the mind of man. It's not the will of man that matters anymore. It's what God has said in the book, as it is written. That's indicative of what Protestant theology identifies as the marks of Scripture. In the writings of the Reformers, and we teach this our students in the college, and I have the privilege of teaching the systematic theology class, and we always go through that particular aspect of systematic theology, which is called divine revelation. And divine revelation not only has to do with the natural revelation all around us in creation, but the special revelation that God has given in His Word. Because man in his darkness and his blindness, though there is natural revelation in creation, and the heavens declare the glory of God, for example, man is blind and he can't read the book of nature. So God has given us the Bible. And there are four marks of the Bible that are really demonstrated in that expression as it is written. What were these people noting? They were noting that God's Word is necessary. We need the book to guide us, the necessity of Scripture. They were also noting the authority of Scripture. It was not what Zerubbabel had to say or Joshua had to say or Jeshua or the priests or whoever. It was what God had to say that was the single ground of authority for what they were going to do and what they believed. And then, as it is written, that also underlines the sufficiency of Scripture. When you have the Word of God, you don't need anything else. We don't need dreams or visions or tongues or whatever. God's Word is sufficient. It's also marked by what's called perspicuity or clarity. In other words, the Word of God is clear. Those are the four marks of Scripture it's necessity, it's authority, it's sufficiency, it's perspicuity or clarity that the Reformers set down in opposition to the errors of, of, of Romanism. And we must stand on those uh, particular tenets of what the Bible is all about. You see, any acclaimed movement of the Spirit is shown to be spurious when the marks of Scripture are replaced by human wisdom and tradition, because that always leads to an abandonment of the Word of God. Jesus Christ Himself, who is the Word made flesh, how did He answer the devil? As it is written. Thus saith the Lord. And that's precisely what's going on here. We seek God and worship upon the ground of Scripture. But we also seek God and worship, these people didn't only on the basis of Scripture, but on the basis of the sacrifice. Because you'll find that down through these verses, over and over again, 
actually six times in these verses in this chapter, there's a reference to burnt offerings. Under the Levitical law, the ceremonial law, the burnt offering was that offering where every part of the animal was burned, consumed in the fire on the altar of burnt offering. No part escaped the fire. It was completely consumed. And that's the offering that dominates this whole scene. Here they are. They build the altar again. They restore the worship of God by offering these sacrifices. It goes on. It continues. And actually the, the term burnt offering literally reads this way. That which goeth up. What does that signify? It signifies that the offering, the burnt offering, and that special sense of it being wholly consumed. See, in other offerings, a part was taken by the priest and a part been given to the person who brought the victim to be offered. But in the burnt offering, everything was burned. That which goeth up. What's the sense of that? What is the meaning of that? The atonement is first and foremost Godward. God must be satisfied. His wrath must be appeased. His holy justice must be met in all its demands. Sin must be dealt with so that God is appeased. All of this is signified by that burnt offering. Because that burnt offering, yes, like all the other offerings, but the burnt offering especially pointed to the death of Jesus Christ in a very singular way. Because at the cross, brethren and sisters, our Savior offered Himself without spot to God to do the very things I've mentioned, to appease divine justice, to quench divine wrath, to satisfy the demands of a holy law, to bring in everlasting righteousness for guilty sinners like you and me. And when revival comes, when people gather themselves together unto God, oh, I tell you, there's no doubt about this, the focus is always on the cross, on the atonement, on the precious blood of our Savior. There is no genuine seeking after God and spiritual life except on the foundation of that once and for all sacrifice that our Savior offered up at Calvary. And if you read this chapter carefully, you will find that this was the immediate focus of these people. Just look at verse 1 for a moment again. When the seventh month was come, the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Just notice the reference there to the seventh month. And then go down to verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings. It was the immediate focus. As soon as they got themselves to Jerusalem and the preliminary matters were dealt with that we looked at last night in chapter 2 and they assembled for worship, the first thing they did was slay the bullock and shed its blood. The very first day of that seventh month, it was the immediate focus it was also a daily focus. Look at verse number 4. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings 
by number, according to the custom, as the duty of every day required. There wasn't a day when the burnt offering was not being presented. And so, if you look at verse 3, even it tells you there that there were burnt offerings morning and evening. What would they have been? Have you ever read in Exodus, for example, of the morning and the evening lamb? Every day in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple of Solomon. And now they're reinstating it here. Every day in the morning there was a lamb offered. And then in the evening there was a lamb offered. Do you understand, brethren and sisters, that the evening lamb was offered at the very time when our Savior was on the cross? He died, the Lamb of God, at the very same time that the evening lamb when the temple would have been offered. When the Lord was on the cross at Calvary, the temple was still standing it wasn't erased, it wasn't uh, raised to the ground until 70 AD. It's still standing there in that year, 33 AD, and our Savior's on the cross, and he's a Lamb of God. And over there in the temple, a little lamb is dying and is being wholly burnt. It's the evening lamb. And so there was a daily focus on this, and it was consistent as well. Look at verse 5 here. And after it offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons. Notice, notice the phrase, the continual burnt offering. Ah, oh, my friend, they saw this. They saw this clearly. They're seeking God here. They're coming together before God. The foundation is the book as it is written. But the foundation is also the sacrifice. Nobody can gather before God. No gathered, no, no assembly, no congregation can gather before God acceptably, except on the basis of the Savior's precious blood. You wonder why your minister leads you to the throne of grace in the opening prayer by pleading the blood. And mind taking us all to the cross, it's the only way to come before God and, you know, they had, as I mentioned, they had already set up the altar. I just want to say this quickly before I move on because time always seems to run away with me. But uh, look at verse, uh, what verse is it here? Where it says they set the altar. Yeah, verse 3. They set the altar upon his bases. And what is this saying? When they came back to Jerusalem, everything had been destroyed, but they discovered that the foundation for the altar was still there. The bases were still there, the bases for that altar, still there. What's it stressing? It's stressing that the foundational truths of the gospel cannot be destroyed. It is stressing that the Lord's atoning death has an enduring efficacy. Let me illustrate this a little farther for you. I, I, I trust you're seeing and learning what the history of all this is. They've been in Babylon for 70 years. They're now coming home. You know a number of men who were in Babylon. Ezekiel was in Babylon, and he functioned there as a prophet. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in Babylon. They were captives. 
Daniel was in Babylon. And every child in our Sunday school and children's meeting will know the little chorus, Daniel was a man of prayer. Daily he prayed three times. But you read the story or the account carefully in Daniel 6, and you will find that when Daniel went to pray, he opened the windows of his home or his where he lived toward Jerusalem. Now, it wasn't because he was homesick. Maybe he was homesick. I don't know. But by that point, he'd been there an awfully long time. But why did he open his windows toward Jerusalem? Because God had told Israel through Solomon, and you'll find this in 1 Kings 6, and you'll find this in 2 Chronicles as well. God told his people, when you are scattered for your sin, pray toward Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where Christ was going to die. That's why. When Daniel prayed toward Jerusalem, there was no temple, there was no altar. So why did he pray toward Jerusalem? because he was looking away beyond an earthly temple or an earthly altar, and he was thinking of the Lamb of God who would arrive in this city of Jerusalem, and outside its walls he would die for his sin. And that's why Daniel in chapter 9 writes so clearly of the Messiah being cut off, not for himself, but for his people to bring in everlasting righteousness, to make an end of sin. Daniel knew his theology. Daniel knew all about the cross. And these people know about the cross. And they're seeking God together on the basis of the Scripture and the basis of the cross work of our Savior. We must move on. We have here also God's people standing together. We've seen them seeking together in the first part of the chapter, now go to verse 9. Then stood Jeshua with his sons and his brethren. It mentions there their names. And then you got the word together. And in this particular verse, the verb stood is also connected with the word together. I know they're separated in our English translation, but in the Hebrew language, the word here is one word and it means to stand together. Isn't that a good position to be in? Isn't that how we want to be? And I tell you tonight, when God sends a breath of His Spirit, it will cause people not only to seek Him together, but it will cause God's people to stand together. They were standing together here in the context of the building of the house of God. That's our great project. They've got to build God's house. Now we know that the Bible refers to the church as the house of God. The Bible refers to the church as the temple of God. And so, apart from the physical building here, the house or the temple of God, there's something else going on. Those people who are gathered together, they are God's house. Do you understand that? Let us see that tonight. We're met here in this hall, and here's a company of Christians uh, sitting before the Lord. Do you realize that you are the house of God? That it's in you that He lives? 
It's not merely this, these walls that the Lord uh, abides in. No, not at all. Because the Bible says, God dwelleth not in temples made by hands, but he does live in the hearts of his people. That's where he dwells. Ephesians 2, the very end of the chapter, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, he writes there of there being a holy temple in the Lord built together to be the habitation of God. Oh, brethren and sisters, see your real identity tonight. See who you actually are in Jesus Christ. You are the habitation of God. And that's a wonderful truth. And what a privilege that the Lord would live in our hearts. That He'd take up His residence in our souls. That He'd come to occupy the inner man by His Spirit. What condescension on the part of the Holy Spirit to come and live in human beings. Do you know that God doesn't dwell in angels? The angels, the holy angels, yes, they're His servants. They minister to Him, as we know. And there are ministers too because they're sent forth to minister to those who are the heirs of salvation but God doesn't live in the angels. He lives in human beings like us, redeemed by His blood, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And you see, when we think about that, surely it teaches us we must stand together. This is why the old devil wants to divide the saints and tries at utmost to do that. And we must guard against that with all our might, united around Christ and those things that are fundamental to the gospel and standing together for the Savior's name and for the glory of our God. And as I say, we are the temple of the Lord. And you know what it says there in 1 Corinthians 3? If you want to turn there quickly, 1 Corinthians 3, we find that as the Lord builds His church and works and moves and brings people together to stand together, He involves the instrumentality of His people in that whole work. If you look at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8, it says this, Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. I know in the context here, Paul is writing about gospel ministers specifically, but we can broaden this out. Look at verse number 9. And it says this, we are laborers together with God. That's how the Christian is described. That's how a congregation is described. Here's the church at Corinth. And I'll tell you something. Read the book of 1 Corinthians and find out how many problems they had. One after the other. But Paul tells, tells them here. He reminds them here. You're God's church. You're to be laborers together with God. You notice that? With God. God's laboring in the world, but you and I are given the great privilege of laboring in this world. How wonderful that the Lord would take sinners saved by grace and give them a series of rules uh, to fulfill as He builds His church. But that's what He does. 
And he, he does that in his grace. He, he gives some to be ministers, some to be elders, some to be deacons, some to be teachers of the children, and on and on it goes. And every Christian, he gives every Christian the privilege of being a witness for Christ wherever you go. God gives you that privilege. And therefore, we are to stand together. Going back there to uh, Ezra chapter 3, just note with me in verse number 9 what it actually says. I, I've commented on this. They stood together. And they were standing together with a certain objective. If you look at verse 8, and just note this with me. It says, In the second year they're coming into the house of God at Jerusalem. In the second month they began, as it says here, uh, all that were come out of the captivity, they began to work. But notice the, the closing words, to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. There was their objective, to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Now, what is your objective? And what is the objective of God when He sends a move of the Spirit and He saves people and He brings them together into a church family? What is the objective to set forward the, the work of the house of the Lord. And notice as we just read in verse 8, all these people a short time before were captives. They were in Babylon. They were hand, their hands were tied. They were useless. They were not serving God at all. But the Lord brought them out. Why has he brought you out? He has brought you out to stand together with your brethren and sisters to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Let me show you something here. If you look at verse 8 again, it says, Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, and you compare that with verse 1, when the seventh month was come, and that was the first year in verse 1. So what you find is, as you work your way down through this chapter, over a year has gone by from they first arrived. And they did some work. But then something happened. And they're now at the second year, as verse 8 tells you. And they're now standing together, thank God, to do this work. But a period of time has gone by when they haven't been working. They have been wasting time. Let me elaborate on that by taking you to Haggai chapter 1. Haggai 1, verse number 2. Now, keep this in mind. Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries with the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. I just say that in passing. I'm not going to say any more than that because it's so so clearly presented. These two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they ministered in the days of these men uh, like uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and so on. They, they ministered in their days. We're in that same time period. And notice what Haggai had to do. He had to send a message or deliver a message to these people whom we see in Ezra 3. And he gives us more light here. So Haggai 1 verse 2, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, this people say, that's the very same people as in Ezra 3, the time is not come that the Lord's house 
should be built. And right down through this chapter, and you'll discover what they were doing. They weren't attending to God's house. They were attending to their own houses. Actually, let me tell you, this might surprise you, might shock you, the way it hits you. When Ezra, or sorry, when Haggai delivered this message, you know how many years had gone by and the house of God still was not built? Eighteen years. The Jews came back in the year 538 B.C. from Babylon. Haggai began to minister in the year 520 B.C. Eighteen years have gone by. They got the foundation in, but that's all they did. They've wasted time, and the Lord has to come and rebuke them. As Haggai does, as you read Haggai 1, it's a, it's a sermon. It's one of those places in the Bible where you get the man's date and everything about his sermon. He actually tells you uh, here in verse 1 of Haggai 1, in the second year of Darius, the king in the sixth month, in the first day of the month. And he does that the whole way through this book. He gives you the dates of his sermons. But the point is, God sends Haggai to stir these people up. This is all part of the reviving work. Yes, they must come together. They must put away their folly. They must turn away from their own things and get one mind and stand together and get the work of God done. Set forward the work of the house of the Lord. That was their objective, and they were not seeing to it. And so Haggai has to come along and deliver God's word And you know, my dear friend, if you read Haggai 1, you will find that they were suffering for their negligence, their crops had failed, their whole system of income had come to nothing. It was like putting, as the Lord says, putting money into a bag with holes in it. Everything failed because they weren't attending to what they should have been doing. Let me just ask you, Are you standing together with your brethren and sisters as one man with them? Or has your mind been diverted away in another direction and you're attending to personal things and maybe things that are legitimate in their own place, but they have come between you and God. They've come between you and the Lord's work. It may be that in former times you were zealous and you were in the work of God, heart and soul. But it may be quite a while since you ever really put your shoulder to the wheel and your hand to the plow. And you're not standing together with those who are laboring for the Savior. God's people seeking together, standing together. And then in closing, Ezra 3, verse 11. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because uh, he is good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. It says there they sang together. It says they sang together by course. I mentioned this last night. And really what that signifies is they sang in parts. They sang actually in turns. 
They responded one to the other. And so one part of the congregation would sing a certain measure and then another part would sing. And that's how the singing was done. They're singing together. They're in harmony. They're enjoying themselves in that sense. They're enjoying singing the praise of God. Do you know that God had said they would do this? Let me take you to Jeremiah 33. Verses 10 and 11. Jeremiah 33, verse 10. And remember that Jeremiah, that weeping prophet, is one of the prophets who predicted the captivity. He actually lived to see it happen. As you read Jeremiah carefully, you will find that. He was alive when the captivity came. The captivity uh, came in three stages. Nebuchadnezzar invaded the land of Israel and Judah on three separate occasions. But anyhow, Jeremiah lived in those days when all this was happening. But God used Jeremiah not only to warn what was coming, but to actually give these people who would eventually come back from Babylon something to encourage them. And this is wonderful. In spite of their sins, the Lord was still giving them encouragement. So Jeremiah 33 verse 10, Thus saith the Lord, Again there shall be heard in this place, which ye say shall be desolate without man and without beast, even the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of them that shall say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And those are the very words that you find in Ezra 3 and verse number 11. The Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. God told them before they ever went to Babylon, you'll come back again and here's what you will sing. And that's what they sang. And actually, that part of what the Lord said they would sing, that the Lord is good, His mercy endures forever. Where do you also find that? You find that in Psalm 100. Just about the very same words are found in Psalm 100. And I wouldn't be surprised, I can't say this categorically, but I wouldn't be surprised that when they come back, as we see there in Ezra 3, and they're singing together, they sang that psalm the old 100, as it's called. And you know that well. You see, men and women, we're not exclusive psalmists. Psalmists, in the sense of we, we don't believe in singing psalms only, but we do believe in singing psalms. They're part and must be part of our praise because God has given us the psalms for that reason. And what a beautiful psalm is Psalm 100. And the very words that I am showing you are found in that psalm. People singing together. Oh, it wasn't perfect. Just look quickly in closing here. It says in verse 11, they sang together. And even they shouted with a great shout. And so on. And you know, that happens when revival comes. There's the shout among the saints that the Lord is on the move. 
I remember when I first went to Six Mile Cross as a student minister, and those were great days. The church there had just started, and people had been saved and so on, and, and the work was going on uh, from strength to strength. And there was a little old lady, and she loved the Lord, and she had a powerful voice. She was well into her 80s. And one Sunday morning, whatever I was preaching, she must have been blessed. <laughs> Suddenly, there was this hallelujah that rang out from that old lady. And I have to confess, I almost fell in the pulpit because the sound of her hallelujah startled me. But you see, what I'm saying is, there was a shout. But go a little farther here. Look at verse 12. Many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice. Many shouted aloud for joy and there was a bit of confusion. It says in verse 13, the people couldn't discern the one from the other. What's going on here? Well, simply this. There were those who were living in the past. They thought about Solomon's temple. Some of these people who came back from, from Babylon were old enough to remember the whole 70 years that had gone by, and they remembered Solomon's temple, and they looked now at this new temple, and it's just not as big or whatever. And so they start to cry. Now, I'm not criticizing them. But I am saying that what was happening here was according to the direction of God. But there were some who were living in the past. We learn from the past, but we mustn't live in the past. We live for here and now. You cannot duplicate what God did before. And we need to learn that lesson. Yes, we would love to see it again. But just because it's not happening now the way it used to happen before is not any reason for not enjoying what God's doing now. They're not only living in the past, they were despising the day of small things. And doesn't both Haggai and Zechariah point that out? You read their books and you'll find that. Especially, especially Zechariah in chapter 4, he uses those very words about despising the day of small things. It's easy to do that. Very easy. Some of us here tonight, and I know I speak for some of you, your minds can go way back. Maybe when this church was born, or many of our congregations were born. And looking back now, as we often say, hindsight's a great thing. Those were days of the right hand of God. They were days of reviving. And now we say, oh, it's not like the old days. And it's not, perhaps. But God is still working. That's the thing. And while it, while it may not be 
to the level we would like it to be, especially comparing it with the old days, nonetheless, he's still working. And what we need to do is seek together, stand together, sing together over what he is doing now and rejoice in it and not fall into this trap of living in the past or despising the day of small things. But rather, today, rejoicing in our God and looking to Him to do what He is able to do again. And in His own way, whatever He deems fit to do, that's what we want. And may we all take it to heart tonight. May God bless His word to our souls and, and be with us as we come to a close. If you're able to come back again tomorrow night, please do so and pray much for the meeting. We'll bow together and let us just have a word of prayer as we come to a close. Father, we thank Thee for Thy precious Word and for what it sets before us. O Lord, we pray that we might be that people who day by day seek Thee with all of our hearts and stand one with the other shoulder to shoulder that the work of God might go forward to set forward thy work. And Lord, we pray that we might have great cause to rejoice, even as we see whatever it may be, whatever the number of people saved or whatever the actual work that God is doing emerges before our minds. Oh Lord, help us to rejoice and fill us with that blessed joy of the Lord. I have said that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And may the Lord visit us to that end. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake and for his eternal glory. Amen.